Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise. By your power, we will go. By your spirit, we are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. So you show up at school and you are so proud that you have done your homework over the weekend and you turn in your assignment um, only to discover that you did the wrong lesson. Mm -hmm. So here we arrive this morning uh, and I hear that today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day is Matthew chapter 6 verse 24. One, uh, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other, which is a wonderful verse and definitely worthy of our reflecting upon. However, the homework that I did over the weekend was in preparation to share with you Acts chapter 20, verse 35. So I'm turning in the assignment that I did. So here you go. Uh, By the way, I'm Carmen LaBerge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. And this is a fantastic verse of the day. And so I share it with you. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. It's a part of his instruction Uh, to the church that was gathering in the city of Ephesus at the time. So Paul says here, again, this is Acts chapter 20, verse 35. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remember the words the Lord Jesus himself said? It's more blessed to give than to receive. So it's a Important consideration, who is more blessed when you render a selfless act of service to the benefit of somebody else? I mean, who is actually more blessed? I mean, Paul is saying here that, you know, it's it's more blessed to to give of ourselves than to receive. Um, the, the idea here is that of a conduit. Everything that you have, you have received. And you are blessed to then serve as the conduit of passing that along to others. You're not intended to be the, um, like a, like a harbor, like a vessel, uh, like a, a space where all the vessels get trapped. You're not meant to be the repository of blessings. You're meant to be a conduit of blessings into the lives of others. It's it's more blessed to render a selfless act of service, to be a blessing, than, um, than to receive a blessing that you then fail to pass along to others. So Paul, again, speaking here to the church in Ephesus, and he's talking about giving. He's talking about um, how we are called to um, support one another. He, he was talking about um, the way that the Ephesian Christians were to pass along the blessings they had received to Christians elsewhere who were in greater need um, than they were, and to supply for the needs of Paul as he continued on from Ephesus to um, to other places, and he was seeking to collect an offering for new Christians um, before he arrived at his final destination, which we know is Jerusalem. And you could read about that in Romans chapter fifteen. So, um, in Paul's very uh, you know sort of last words here to the Ephesians, to his Christian brothers and sisters in Ephesus, he's commending them 
with a word of grace and using his own life and ministry as an example of um, of how we ought to live, both uh, gratefully, joyfully, and generously. You could read the entire book of Philippians on this topic of following the pattern of Paul as he follows the pattern of Jesus in um, in generous living and therefore generous giving. So Christians are generous because we follow the example of the most generous of all, and that would be Jesus. Um, but is it really better to give than to receive? Well, again, it, it, this is the idea um, of being that conduit of, of blessing. It's a whole lot more fun to be in a position to bless someone else than to feel like you are the person constantly in need of other people's help, right? So there is a way, no matter how challenging your circumstance, there is a way for you to bless someone else. Think here about the widow's might. Um, think here about um, the the way the Samaritan crosses the road to help the the traveler in distress. There are ways for you and I to bless other people with a smile, with a word of grace, um, with a helping hand, with a shoulder to lean on. Um, it, there's there's always a way. Um, and so why give? I mean, the motivations are many. You might think about um, the way it gets us off of the focus on ourselves and allows us to see the eternal perspective, um, or at least a perspective larger than the myopic view we can often have of what's going on in our own lives. It also um, it, it helps us get over our love of money and our love of things. And ultimately, it's the generosity of Christians generosity of all kinds. We're not just talking here about material wealth. We're talking here about all forms of blessing, all forms of giving, um, the way you give of yourself day in and day out. It fuels mission. Like it, it literally fuels the mission of the church in the world. And so what has God placed under your stewardship? What has he set you over as a manager, um, not just in terms of material things, but yes, that as well. And do you know that it's more blessed to give than to receive? Our friend Sarah Zylstra is going to join us next. We're going to talk about what's going on in the aftermath of the fires on Maui, how the church is lamenting, and how the church is serving. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Sarah Zylstra is back. Uh, she is the faith and work editor at the Gospel Coalition, and she does just excellent reporting about what's happening not only here in the United States, but around the world. And Sarah's got a piece right now on what is happening uh, in terms of the church's response on the island of Maui, specifically to the fires in Lahaina. Sarah, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Thank you so much. Um, you had a conversation with Pastor Rocky Kamatsu. Um, tell us who he is and what you learned through his view of what's happening um, on Maui. Yeah, I would love to. So Rocky is a pastor who was born and raised in Maui. He's not Hawaiian. I did learn through this that um, just because you live on the island of Hawaii does not mean that you're Hawaiian, like, say, living in Illinois would make you an Illinoisan. Um, you have to be a native uh, it's annoying. Or... Doesn't living in Illinois just make you annoying? No? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, so, I'm so sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> um, and so I, I spoke with him. Um, I actually talked to a, another couple of, I talked to three pastors in all who are close to this. Um, I think the most remarkable thing I learned from them is that there wasn't a lot of emergency response right away. And so the churches were actually the emergency response right away. 
Um, so it took a little bit for the National Guard and the government to, to get things rolling. And so even for about three days, one of the pastors told me they didn't see anybody on the ground wearing camo. It was just other uh, people from the island that were bringing over supplies that were needed. In fact, the roads were even closed down to get into Lahaina. And so mm -hmm. they couldn't, They these pastors, once they realized that, um, started gathering supplies at their churches. And their churches, um, one in particular, um, Jay Haynes's church became, um, he's got a little bit larger church. By larger, I mean 90 people. Um, and they became a place where they collected lots and lots of supplies. And then to get them in, Carmen, they had to get them on a boat or they even got them onto airplanes and flew them over the mountain to, to land there in the town. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Um, you know, they talk about uh, flying in with with supplies and then um, getting a convoy of trucks loaded with more supplies. Um, these guys obviously already knew each other prior to this. In fact, um, you say Haynes's church actually planted Kamatsu's church. So the network uh, among believers is obviously tight and strong, and that was one of the things that I appreciated reading. Then you talked with Jason Hill. He's an Anglican rector who recently planted an Anglican mission church uh, 25 miles from Lahaina. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, this this response from um from churches and, you know, just some other things that you learned along the way. Yeah, I, yeah, that's great. You're right. They are connected. I mean, part of the way they're connected is that all these guys are connected to the Gospel Coalition Network, which is, of course, how I found them. Um, and so you're right. They're, they're all working together on these things. Um, another thing that they're working together on, when I finished talking to Rocky, he asked me, um, for a book, which is unusual. Like at the end of the conversation, I just said, hey, what do you guys need over there? And he's like, man, we need prayer. We also need money because um, in Hawaii, everything is more expensive. You have to get it over 3,000 miles of water before anything can even get there. And so their, their supplies are expensive. He's like, I know this is going to be a long, long road. We're, we've pretty much covered that initial hump. Everybody's got food and water. Everybody's able to take a shower. Um, still working on identifying victims. But boy, the, the long road of rebuilding takes even longer there because it takes a long way for those supplies to get. And also, what a, a tragedy. I mean, this is 2,000 people on an island of like, you know, 125,000. And so it's a huge percent of their population. A lot of people knew these guys. And so when I said, what can I do? He said, you can pray for us. You can send money. But then he also asked me for a book, which was unusual. He said, would you send, are you able to get us copies of Mark Rogup's Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, which is a book on lament. He said, we took our church through this a little while ago, and it just gave us categories. It helped us um, lament well before the Lord. You're crying out. You're honest with him about your feelings. And then, of course, it moves you into as the Psalms so often do, like rejoicing in the Lord, remembering his faithfulness. Um, it, it just helps you know what to do with that sorrow. And he just said, we'd love to hand them out. And so um, I was able to do that. I know some guys at Crossway and they they could not wait to send books over there. They got them there within a couple of days. They sent them 350 copies. And so as they're handing out generators and praying with people and making sure they have what they need, they're also to, able to hand out books to go along with that, which I think is remarkable. Well, in that particular book, 
takes people into the Psalms of Lament and other passages of Lament in Scripture, and it's very, very powerful. We love Mark Vrogop, and we've had him on a couple of times to talk about Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. And so when I read that, I just... I mean, my eyes welled up, and I'm just so thankful. I think that, you know, there's probably people listening who are like, they should give them Bibles. Okay, well, this is actually a way of giving people a portion of Scripture that is meaningful to the path they're currently walking um, and help them understand um, who yeah. God is, the, the the character of God, and God's responsiveness um, in the midst of seasons of lament in our life. So it's such an appropriate book, and it was—I um, just love that. I love that part of the story. So, Sarah, thank you yeah. so much for being the— the link in that particular um, chain of the way God is supplying for the needs of the saints on the front lines um, of and this mission in, in, in Maui. Yeah, go ahead. They, I'm sorry. Crossway did give Bibles too. Um, so this is in addition to Bibles as well, just for Well, and like, I didn't, yeah, this was, that was not meant to be a criticism. It was meant to be like a sometimes, well, well, sometimes we imagine that putting the Bible in somebody's hands is the answer, but the Bible is hard for people to engage and understand Unless yes. there's, I mean, you know, I think about the Ethiopian eunuch. He's He's got the word of God. He's got it open. He's reading it, but he doesn't understand it. And he needs Philip to get into the chariot. You got to run alongside and catch up with where somebody is in order that they can understand what they're reading. And so it's wonderful to give them a companion to scripture. In this case, a pastor from Indianapolis who's, you know, preached through this and written this beautiful book um, and is serving his brothers in Christ who are serving the people you know, on the island of Maui. It's a beautiful, beautiful, like the Apostle Paul would have loved this story, like how, yes. you know, how how guys in one place who are serving Christ are now serving guys in another place serving Christ in order that Christ can be magnified um, in the lives of people who are really hurting um, right now. And so, yeah, so thank you. It's beautiful reporting, and it's a, it's a beautiful testimony um, to the Church of Christ around the world. Let's take a brief break, and then we come back. Um, I'd love for you to share about a gospel oasis on Chicago's South Side. It's a good news piece. It is posted at thegospelcoalition.org. Sarah Zalstra is the author of it, and she's going to share the story with us next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. The Bible is valuable, and reading and studying the Bible can transform your life. Hi, I'm Angela Smith, host of Reading the Bible Together podcast. Several times a year, we release a new Reading the Bible Together study. We've studied Luke, Daniel, Advent, Lent, and so many more. You can access all of our studies for free by going to the Reading the Bible Together resource page at myfaithradio.com. In addition to the studies, we also have the accompanying podcast. You can listen wherever you listen to podcasts. You can study on your own, or if your small group or Bible study is looking for what to study next— Check out the Reading the Bible Together resource page at MyFaithRadio.com. Sarah Zalstra is here with us. She writes for the Gospel Coalition. Uh, She is the Faith and Work Editor there. You can find what we're talking about today at thegospelcoalition.org. Um, Sarah, I was encouraged by your article about a gospel oasis on Chicago's South Side. So could you tell us this story? Yeah, this is a wonderful story. Um, it starts off so typically, There's a there was a girl named Pearl, and she grew up there in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, and she was um, she just fell in with all the, the mess that was around her. Um, so she got in with some friends who taught her how to drink. Um, she fell in with one friend in particular who led her to be um, raped by some guys Um, that led her into drugs. And then 
you know, by the time she was an adult, she had three kids with three different fathers and was just kind of uh, hadn't been sober for 18 years, a lot of drinking some drugs, just trying to forget where she was. Um, and then what happened was her kids started going to church with her parents. And then one day she um, came along, the Lord just, she doesn't even, she couldn't even explain it. She just says, I just got on the bus with the kids. And so she did, she came along. She felt so weird in the sanctuary that she went downstairs and wandered around. Um, she wasn't dressed right, she wasn't clean. Um, but she came into a Sunday school class for homeless people. And she listened to a guy there explain the Bible and that God could forgive anything. And she just like the Lord uh, used that and touched her and changed her entire life. So she went home, she ran for the fridge um, to get herself a fifth of liquor. And she um, fell down in front of the fridge and just said, Lord, could, you know, if you could take this feeling away, um, then I would, I would quit drinking. And, and she said, he didn't take the feeling away, but he, he made me feel clean. And she said to me, I didn't know it was a cleaning on the inside. I thought it was a cleaning on the outside, but she just, for the first time in all those years, since she'd been raped, really felt like she was clean. Um, she slowly, as we do, stumbled through breaking up with her boyfriend, stumbled through getting off of the, all the substances that she was on, moved um, to a neighborhood in Chicago where the church was, which is called Roseland. <clears throat> and there she just began to live. Um, she eventually scrabbled enough money together to get a house. She bought a house on a block that was full of other drug houses. Um, she started talking to the kids who were there. She started a daycare um, to watch the, the little kids of the neighborhood and just through her, I mean, she, this isn't a girl who went to college. She was just slowly just living her life there, praying for the kids who were there, um, following where the Lord led when he said, bring a meal to these kids. She fought for a while and then eventually did. She said, I was so crabby. I walked up to their house with this chicken and potatoes and just shoved it at them. I was like, here's some food. Um, and yet God used that to open their hearts to her and started a relationship with them. And so um, lots of, she's seen lots of lives changed, um, lots of stories of salvation. Of course, not everybody. So it's often really hard, um, but she's the one they call um, when they're in jail. She's the one they call when they're in the hospital. Um, if something happens, she's sort of become a mother to that whole uh, block in Chicago. And it's just um, her, you know, her, her landscaping is done. Um, she's got builders who are working for her as people find out volunteers and money get sent. Um, she's been able to open a coffee shop at which the, it's a safe place. The police are there every day, but they're not there to arrest people. They're there to have a cup of coffee and sit down and talk to residents. Um, and so I think, especially in Chicago, that's been an enormously helpful thing. Um, so it's just a testimony of, of one woman's life who is just completely laid down before the Lord and obeying what he asks her to do. It's such a, um, it's such a beautiful story. I want everybody to read it. Uh, and so you can find it at thegospelcoalition.org. Sarah Zylstra is the author. Um, the article is headed A Gospel Oasis on Chicago's South Side. I'm happy to send you the direct link if you just want to text me, 877-933-2484. Sarah, what a, um, what a wonderful good news story. I'm so thankful for that. Um, all right, so you have one more little tidbit to share in our, um, in our conversation about what God is doing um, through his people around the world um, in response to what's happening 
in, in Maui in the aftermath of the fire in Lahaina. So we have um, these pastors um, who are responding, their congregations are responding. They're on the front lines. They ask, among other things, for copies of a book by a pastor in Indianapolis um, who has who's joined us here, Mark Vergrop. And um, and in addition to sending the books, Crossway sent Bibles. And then what happened? Well, so the interesting thing is, and I think part of this is, you know, you have to say the connection of uh, all being connected at the Gospel Coalition. So I'm talking to these pastors just because um, they're Gospel Coalition pastors. But because of that, I also know Crossway. And because of that, I also know Mark Vrogop, who's a council member. And so I thought it was really neat that this was happening. And I told Mark about it. And that just touched his heart tremendously. And so within, I think, 48 hours, his church had sent thousands of dollars to these churches in Hawaii. Um, and it just thought it was a beautiful picture of how God uses us just knowing about each other's needs um, to be able to fulfill those and just people who are in the right spot, not, not even the right spot at the right time, because it's God who's moving us, um, but that we talk to each other and have friendships and relationships with each other. Um, I just keep thinking about ask and you will receive, but you have to know who to ask um, and and who to ask what. And then when it when it works together, it's such a beautiful working of how God cares for his people by using his people. I hope that there will be a mercy on Maui, the rest of the story. Mm -hmm. Like now Mm -hmm. you know the rest of the story. I think that follow-up stories are so, um, such a gift and so helpful. And they, um, they inspire and encourage us to see things that we might have failed to see. um, And to, to sort of hold in front of us things that it's just so easy to pass from like one conversation to the next, one story to the next, one headline to the next. And sometimes we need to remember that, hey, there's an opportunity there for me yeah. to actually do something in response to something I have heard or read. And that's what feels like has happened here. Like one um, one gift inspired another gift, inspired, you know, will inspire others now to give and and so on and so on. And that's how the needs are met. So thank you so yeah. much for the the part you play in in helping um, us connect to what God is doing in um, in particular communities like Chicago's South Side or mm-hmm. um, on the island of Maui through these congregations um, around Lahaina. We really appreciate it, Sarah. Oh, it is a joy to do this work. To, when you're watching God at work, it is just a joy to do it. Exactly. God at work. That's a great way um, to describe what Sarah brings us. Um, she is the faith and work editor at the Gospel Coalition. You can read what we talked about today and more at thegospelcoalition.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. So when I tell you that there are nearly 6 million people in the United States who have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease or related dementias, um, and that 5.6 million of them are 65 and older. Um, it doesn't, those numbers are like so overwhelming. We, we all recognize that there are memory care units um, in graduated care facilities. We recognize that there are um, ministries for uh, respite care for the caregivers of people who are suffering with Alzheimer's and other related dementias. And to tell you that there's 6 million people um, who have dementia or specifically Alzheimer's, 
it, it doesn't really matter. It's the one person you know that matters. It's the, it's the situation with your mom. It's the situation with your dad. It's the situation with your neighbor. It's the situation with your friend at church. Um, a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, a son or a daughter, a spouse, right? It, the one. It's, it, what matters is the one. And so Karen Martin brings us a story of her one, and her one is named Kathleen. And this is such a beautiful testimony to the power of friendship, the power of generational friendship, how those of us who um, maybe are, you know, still of working age um, are called into friendships with those who are older than we are. And I'm hoping that this will inspire you to consider the friends that you have who have dementia and or specifically Alzheimer's and how we can start recognizing that the storyline is the storyline of friendship, not the storyline of Alzheimer's. So what's the thrust of the story that we're talking about and, and the story that we're telling? Like, what are we allowing to come to the foreground in our conversations? Um, and we're talking here about six million people it, just in the United States alone. And so we're talking about lots and lots of stories. Uh, Karen Martin is going to join us next. The book is Memorable Loss. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Karen Martin is joining us. She's the author of Memorable Loss, a story of friendship in the face of dementia. Karen, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you very much for inviting me. So this is a beautiful, um, beautiful, beautiful story. And I just want you to let's start by introducing us to Kathleen. Exactly. Kathleen was someone I met through Bible study in church. Uh, it was a small group Bible study. There were about 10 or 12 of us. And she was a member of that group. And she was in her 70s when I met her and I was in my 30s. And she was someone who had taught before, and I was a teacher, and she really understood the pressures and things that I was going through in my working life. And so we clicked and she became a very wise friend, a mentor, a fellow coffee and cake fan. She had such a zest for life. She was amusing with a dry sense of humor. She was strong, independent and incredibly faithful. Um, she'd spent her life as a single woman and through that was incredibly strong and self-reliant. Um, yeah, I think that's Kathleen in a nutshell. You, you, you talk about her as being a person who like physically stood head and shoulders above everybody else in the room, but also a person who spoke and taught with authority. Um, and, and so when... Um, when Alzheimer's began to do its work in her, um, yeah. there were some early signs. Um, and yeah. I, I want to highlight that because I do think mm -hmm. that our ability to recognize the earliest of signs, um, it helps because there's there's help for us um, as as those who love a person diagnosed with um, with dementia or specifically Alzheimer's. But helping them as early as possible is also important. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And often the first signs are pre-diagnosis where it's called mild cognitive impairment. But it's so easy to explain away 
the first signs. And I think for many people, it's a withdrawal from things that they have really enjoyed doing. <clears throat> Excuse me. So withdrawal from friendships, withdrawal from social situations, potentially withdrawal from church groups, because there is a fear that they may forget the train of conversation or they may forget a name and become embarrassed. What I first noticed with Kathleen was none of this, but the fact that she was becoming thin and it transpired. She was simply forgetting to eat. She looked at her watch. If it said 2 p.m., she assumed she'd had lunch. I had no idea that was going on until I decided to get alongside her a little more to see if I could support her daily living as a, an older woman. She was in her um, early 80s at this stage. And I moved from just being her friend and she was my mentor and we were, we got on well and she we shared family life to someone who was looking out for her a little bit more. So it was her thinness that I noticed first of all, but then she became much quieter, stopped going to coffee mornings with her friends. Um, crosswords were left half done instead of fully done. Just really minor things. And I suppose looking back, one of the things that I didn't associate with Alzheimer's at all was the fact that household appliances seemed to fail on a catastrophic scale the year before she was diagnosed. And in that year, I helped her to repurchase a television, a washing machine um, and other such things because she told me they'd broken. She was such an intelligent woman. I didn't even question whether they were broken, but it was just that she had forgotten how to use the remote control, how to use the uh, how to use the controls on the washing machine. Um, and little everyday things that she'd always been able to do were becoming harder. Mm. We're talking with Karen Martin. The book is Memorable Loss, a story of friendship in the face of dementia. We do have copies to give away if you'd like to enter the drawing. <laughs> For those copies, you know the drill. Text the word book to 877-933-2484. Um, over time, you began to realize that Kathleen was lonely. Um, that's an epidemic today among older and, and younger adults alike. Um, and she became knit into, in, in fact, a fixture of your family. And I bring that up because I think that context is important here. She was a real friend, a true friend. Um, oh. And I want to I want you to talk about um, how this person who was not a, uh, you know, not a quote unquote relative, but a sister in Christ um, mm. was really woven into your family. I, I think that the the way that your family um it wasn't just hospitality. It's not that she was just offered a seat at the table. She was really <laughs> woven into your family life. Yes, she was. I think when I reflect on her, I've got a photograph of her right now while I'm talking to you. Um, she was open and I'm quite open, um, but we're also both quite private. So we'll talk about anything, but we choose who we're going to talk to. And I think it's just by degrees. Friendship is always by degrees, isn't it? You begin mm -hmm. with something in common. And for us, it was the fact that she had been a deputy head teacher and I was a teacher of English. But then I started giving her lifts to Bible study because she didn't want to drive in the dark anymore. And as you spend more time with people, they become your friends. And some people are friends for just a very short amount of time uh, and it's intense. 
but God gave me Kathleen and gave Kathleen to me. Um, and we found something in each other that was sustaining and it was mutual. Uh, so we just became friends. Really small things like I realised she hadn't had a Christmas with a family for a very long time because she had volunteered at the local old folks uh, Christmas uh, occasion and she would do the washing up and the serving. And I said, come to us for Christmas. And that's where it began. And one of the gifts she gave, gave to our family was humour. She joined in our family quizzes. She taught my children love for an older person who begins to lose some of their cognition. And I have great thankfulness for the fact that loving Kathleen in our family has meant that my ch children, now young adults in their mid-20s, are really comfortable with circular conversations, with repetition, and with some of the frustrations that come with um, a, a dementia diagnosis. So she just wove herself under our skin. We we loved her. Um, and so it's, I think I say something in the book about, we both had a very strong sense of duty that goes through us, but duty can seem like something you have to do. But instead of what you, should do instead it's what you could do for somebody else it's it's loving your neighbor as yourself as we're instructed to do um and that promise in in romans 12 in christ we are one body and each member belongs to all the others we can't all belong to everybody in a deep and meaningful way we can trust each other as brothers and sisters in christ and have that real faith in common but we are gifted through God, those people that we meet who are going to become special to us and become part of our family. So although we can love each member belonging to the others, we are given special, special relationships, I think, that God really puts his heart over and transforms into something more than they might be, if that makes any sense at all. It, it makes perfect sense, and it is um, a wonderful way of describing what the story that you tell about your friendship with Kathleen um, that develops over the years and includes the, you know, this, the entrance, this terrible intruder, um, the <laughs> entrance into this friendship of what we call Alzheimer's, um, but might mm -hmm. more, you know, generally just be called dementia. Um, and the day upon which it arrived, you might not have totally recognized, but um, you you talk about how how to keep it from becoming the thrust of the storyline. That's really what um, my takeaway from Memorable Loss was. Like, how do I keep my friendship in the foreground and not let dementia or Alzheimer's become what, you know, become what's right in front of me all the time. Instead, how do I keep this precious person and our friendship in front of me instead of um, allowing this robber, this this thief, um, mm. to, to become the center of everything that I think about and talk about in regards to this precious person? So can we have that conversation when we come back from a very brief break? Absolutely. We're talking with Karen Martin. Her book is Memorable Loss, A Story of Friendship in the Face of Dementia. We do have copies to give away. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. As we consider the life of Jesus and the life of the first generation of Christians, reading here the book of Acts and all the letters to the Christians in the New Testament, we see people who like wake up, they come to see and understand and then receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And 
It changes everything. We see Christians then telling other people about the good news and inviting them to respond in repentance, be baptized, and follow Jesus. The movement of Christianity grows person by person and then exponentially as people walking in darkness receive the light of Christ and want others to know what they know and have what they have. Well, you and I are living in dark days. People need light. And Jesus is the light of the world today in the same way that he was the light of the world at the beginning of creation and at the first Christmas and throughout his life on earth and in his radiance now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the light of the world. So if you're walking in darkness of any kind today, I invite you to consider Jesus. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. Ours is a story where Alzheimer's created a strong bond, where ordinary friendship grew through the challenges of dementia. That's one of the things that Karen Martin says about her friendship with Kathleen. The book is Memorable Loss, a story of friendship in the face of dementia. If you have um, a friend, a family member who is among the millions in America who have Alzheimer's and or um, another form of dementia, and you're wondering, how do I love them well? How, how does our relationship grow in the midst of this? This is the book for you. Um, we do have copies to give away. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484. So let's, um, Karen, let's talk about that. Like, I, I think it is so counterintuitive and contrary to much of our lived experience to imagine that a relationship could grow in the midst of an Alzheimer's diagnosis. So can you, can you talk about that? How do we allow friendship, our relationship, this bond we have with this other person to remain in the forefront, the thrust of the narrative, when this disease is robbing us of so much. Thank you. I'd love to talk about that. Um, I'm, I'm also going to say that I think it's really important that everyone's experience of a dementia journey is different. And the different forms of dementia can make for different impairments for uh, individuals. Um, this is my experience, but I do think there's something universal that we can take away from it. And I think the key to that is that memory is not all we are. And if we have friendship with people or loved ones, it doesn't have to be a friend. It could be a spouse. It could be a parent. You know those people well and intimately. And the last things we surrender are the essential parts of what make us who we are. And who we are is what makes us friends with people. And I tried really hard with Kathleen. I fought really hard when I was with uh, hospital staff and other friends for people to see Kathleen first and not her impairments. Mm. And that was really important to me. She was intelligent, articulate, uh, beautiful uh, specimen of human, of, human, of human being. She was a lovely, lovely person, but she was so intelligent. And I hated the idea that people would downgrade her in the way they spoke to her, might patronise her. So I think that's where I started. This book began as a polemic into how to, to try and treat people with dementia better. And it became softer and more autobiographical as it progressed and as she became poorly. Um, but I think 
our friendship really did develop because Kathleen had to trust me more. Uh, she had no family uh, nearby, so I was her local carer, if you like. She had family who loved her deeply, but they were nephews and a brother who were not local to her. So in order for her to continue being as independent and as Kathleen as possible, she needed to put her trust in me. And so that is where I explain that our friendship deepened. I experienced trust from her in a way I would never have experienced had she not had Alzheimer's. We were good friends, we laughed, she was part of our family, but way before Alzheimer's crept in. But that deep level of trust, she allowed me to curate some of her memories for her. She allowed me to take her to places where she was nervous of going out, but she gave me that trust. And it was like, if she was with Karen, it was going to be okay. And I can't put into words the privilege that that is and the love that that enabled me to feel for Kathleen. It deepened the more she put her trust in me, if that again makes sense. It does. I think that one of the things, and I appreciate that you point out that every dementia journey is unique and it's, it's unique. Um, not just like every person's experience, even with Kathleen was a unique experience. Not uh, you know, Absolutely. other people did not have, um, the experience that you had. I mean, that's the nature of personal relationship. And so I, I genuinely appreciate, um, your, your sharing your, journey with this other precious person as together mm -hmm. you had this dementia journey and she experienced that journey in a different way than you did but there's this um this uh, you you hold this out as this this image where you can still see and appreciate her and it's at this fireworks display and at this point um she's she's nearly gone i don't know how else to say that in a way that is <laughs> both kind and accurate can you take us to that evening? Yes, for me, it began as an ordinary fireworks evening. She's been in a care home for uh, five years. This was her fifth fireworks evening. And there was nothing in that evening for me to think that this would be the last one that we would share. Um, but she had had dementia for a significant amount of time, I think possibly near near on a decade. So I suppose knowing her as I did, because we were friends, I had learned how to adapt. So for example, I removed her hearing aids before we went to the fireworks display, because I knew that the sudden noises amplified would uh, preclude her enjoyment. I had already learned to sit further back so that she could still enjoy it. But I also knew her character well enough to know there was no way we were going to be watching that from inside the lounge. She would want to go outside and be in with the activity. And I think that sense of deepening friendship with someone who has dementia, if you know that person well enough pre-dementia, those basics don't change. She would have been someone who wanted to be outside. So there's no way I would have said, oh, it's going to be warmer inside. Let's stay in. So to be true to who they are, because you've got a relationship already, is the starting point for developing a positive relationship, which allows you to make the adaptations for um, old age and dementia. Yes, we need to, to adapt continually, but 
we you adapt in the knowledge of that person in the first instance. It, the knowledge I had of Kathleen was based on years before an Alzheimer diagnosis. So similarly, when someone came around to assess her for her memory loss, I knew which biscuits to buy. I knew what she would have bought if she had had the capacity to go shopping and practice hospitality. So um, yeah, I think that fireworks display marked the beginning of the end for me in a way that I was unaware of at the time. And just looking back, I thought, okay, that was our last normal moment before other complications of medical health um, came in to fight alongside the dementia to take her away from us. I can't remember the the journalist, um, and I will I will dig this out and send it to you. Um, but I can't remember. There was a journalist, a young woman whose whose dad was diagnosed with dementia, and you know because of the circumstances related to all of that, he needed to be in a care facility, um, and she um, wrote his story, everything that she could think of to write about him, um, and put it on the door. And basically said, you know, if you if you intend to care for this man, I want you to know who he is. I want you to know what he's like. I want you to know what his preferences are. Um, I want you to know, you know, the dignity with which he has lived and that there are people who love him deeply. And we appreciate that you are caring for him in these ways that we cannot. And I just we we know these people and we can't we and we have to become their advocates in ways that um um, that honor the dignity of their humanity, um, even when the world can't see them. We still see them. And I think that's really the takeaway. That was the point. Like, this is a person who you knew and you saw her, um, even as she was being robbed of so many things by Alzheimer's. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's that, I mean, it's called personhood and seeing the person first. Mm. And uh, many people have um, have written about that in um, psychological and elderly care journals and things like that. But I think it is so important. And I think we all, even with full capacity, can recognise that sometimes in a medical setting or a setting where we're unfamiliar, um, we feel a little bit alienated. Um, and I think it's really important to that other people are there to encourage us to build us up knowing who we are and i think we need friendship we need friendship throughout our life and we need that like you say honoring um honoring individuals by knowing who they are and therefore allowing decisions to be made that we might not make ourselves but we in our knowledge of that person can make those decisions and the move to the care home was a real um a real case in point there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kathleen's nephews knew her better than I did then. I did not want her to go into a care home. I wasn't ready. But they realised, looking from afar and objectively, that that is what Kathleen would have wanted because mm-hmm. at that point she was requiring so much of my time on a daily basis. They realised that that wouldn't be what she mm-hmm. wanted. Had she not had Alzheimer's, she would have been saying, no, she needs to get on with her own life. Mm-hmm. And so that the decision to put her into a care home made by her nephews and bringing me alongside it in such a beautiful way mm-hmm. um, was just, just such incredible that knowing Kathleen, yeah. knowing Kathleen. Incredible part of the journey story. Karen Martin is the author. Memorable Loss is the book. Karen, thank you so much for joining us on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. 
If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.